right. Good morning. All right. Um, when, when I was about 12 years old, um, we lived in an awesome neighborhood in Northern California. And we had this awesome house that was on kind of the end of a cul-de-sac. And uh, there was no houses past our house, but there was like this road that continued on past our house. And it was like a fire access road so that they could get to some, you know, grassy hills in the back. And, and that road that was, that was right next to our house, um, it even had like a, a chain up so that people couldn't drive up there. That road became kind of like one of the hangout spots for all the kids in the neighborhood. And this is back when kids in the neighborhood like just hung out with each other. Um, and so we would do all sorts of like stupid things back there. You know, we would build uh, ramps for our bikes to go off, uh, or rollerblades, because that was cool back then. I think it's getting cool again now. Um, and really, one of the things, most of the things that we did back there was just kind of destroying stuff, because uh, that's what 12-year-old boys do. It's like they, they want to destroy things. I don't know why, what it is. But um, th there's like some piece of a 12-year-old boy that just needs to see something explode. And so, you know, we would go back there and, you know, we would see what we could break with a baseball bat and like pitch, you know, soda cans at each other and see if we could hit them and make them explode and just silly stuff like that. And we got into the, we had this phase where uh, we started lighting stuff on fire. And I, you guys might think, you know, I've got a couple fire stories now under my belt, um, but I'm, I promise I'm not a pyro. I but, you know, as a 12-year-old boy, fire is pretty cool. And uh, so we would just, like, you know, we'd see what we could melt. We'd take old toys back there. We'd take tennis balls and, and try to light, you know, whatever it was, we, we just saw, does it burn? Like, I just had to know this is a scientific experiment. Um, but I do remember specifically one day, I'll never, for, I'll never forget this day. Um, we were back there. It was me and my friend Drew Pearson. Uh, he, he lived in our neighborhood, and um, he, he was kind of a wild guy, uh, definitely had a, a tinge of ADD. And uh, we got back there, and we decided we were going to build this huge bonfire. And so uh, I did not do a ton of camping growing up, but I know what a bonfire looks like on TV. And so I got some rocks, and we made this big circle, and we started just throwing stuff in there, um, like some trash and, you know, two-by-fours. There were houses that were being built around the neighborhood, so we went and borrowed some of their lumber, and, you know. <laughs> and so we kind of built this thing, and we're trying to light it. And Drew, Drew has the lighter, and he's trying to light this thing, and it's not going. And uh, I realize, well, we can't just light a stick of wood with a lighter. Like, that's not going to work. And I come up with this fantastic idea. I tell Drew, like, hey, I know where my dad keeps the gas can to fill up the lawnmower. And so I'll go grab that, and we'll, we'll pour it on this thing, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> right? So I run into the garage, and I grab this gas can, and it's, one of the, it's like a big one with with the long nozzle that, you know, you, so you can pour it into the lawnmower. And I come out, and I just start dumping this thing onto what, what's going to be our bonfire. And I, I mean, I was like the kid 
at Olive Garden who just like never said when with the Parmesan cheese. That's, that's what I was doing with this gasoline, just dumping it on this fire. And my thought was, okay, I'll dump it all on. Maybe we'll light something on fire and kind of throw it in there. You know, this is going to be sweet. Well, Drew, he didn't have the same plan going on in his head. Because as I'm dumping the gasoline onto this fire, he pulls the lighter out of his pocket and sticks it in there and lights. And it's like immediately it kind of erupts, I guess you could say. It kind of like a little fireball, poof. It knocked us both back onto our butts. And it was a moment where, you know, you kind of check to see are my eyebrows still there? Like, is everything good? You know, nothing on me is on fire. And, and I'll never forget this moment. I look over, I'm still holding the gas can. And I look at the tip of the gas can, and I realize my life is about to be over because the tip of the gas can is on fire. And I now know that that's probably not that dangerous. But as a 12-year-old, I thought everything exploded, right? Like in movies, if you crash your car, it explodes. Or, or if you leave the gas on at your house, like the house explodes. Like everything in movies taught me growing up that everything explodes. And so I had this thought in my head that this fire, the fire is going to travel down the tube and get inside the can, and the whole can is just going to erupt, and I'm dead. And so complete and utter panic sets in, like the, the fear and panic like you would not believe. And I take the gas can, and I just start waving it as fast as I can, waving the gas can, trying to put this, the tip of the gas can out. And as I'm waving it, gas passes through the nozzle, catches fire, and hits whatever I'm, I'm waving it at. And so this, whole, I'm, I'm, this fence is starting to catch fire. There's fire on the ground. There's gas on the ground. I realize this isn't working. Like, this is making things worse. And I've, also figure, you know, I probably have one second left because of movies, and so I just kind of chuck it. And I'm not very strong. It goes like six, seven feet. It lands and just starts dumping gas on the ground, and then that catches fire. And, and now I'm like, this is not, this is not good. Like, we're, we're going to die. And so I, I remember in the middle of this, wait, we have a pool. And so I run, and I grab the gas can, and I'm running because I'm, I'm going to throw this gas can in our pool. Right? So full speed, I book it through our gate. I've got the gas can in my hand, which now, you know, as an adult, I have a pool. And I realize how destructive and horrible this would be. But I am about to throw this gas can in the pool because it's the only thing that will keep us alive. And I look at the tip, and somehow it's just gone out. And I come back outside, and of course, like, the ground is on fire and the fence is on fire, and so I run and grab the hose, and I put those things out. And luckily, nothing really bad happened except for a few singed hairs. But it was in that moment that I realized how, when, when faced with my own mortality, 12-year-old Tyler, it was like pure panic and pure fear. Like faced with my own death, I, the, the first thing I did was completely panic and, com and completely do the wrong thing. See, this morning, we're talking about the first martyr in the book of Acts, the first man to die for his faith in Jesus. Yet, in, in the face of death, he responds completely differently. He doesn't, there's not fear, there's not panic, there's not anger. He responds completely differently. And so, before we jump into it, I'm just going to pray for us. Lord, 
Thank you for your word. Thank you that it teaches us, shows us who you are. God, this morning as we uh, dive into what you have for us, Lord, I pray that you would grab a hold of our hearts, that you would open our ears to hear. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you've been following along in the, in the series, uh, you know that last week, Jared preached about Acts 6, the, the beginning of Acts 6, where a problem begins to arise in the church. And the problem is that there are this, there's this group of widows who just aren't being taken care of. And it's brought to the apostles, and they decide, this is a, this is a big problem. We need to do something about this. And so they go and they find these seven guys who the Bible says are full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And they give this task to these seven men to take care of these widows. And one of those guys is the man that we're talking about this morning, Stephen. Um, and as we uh, get into Stephen's story, we're going to see three things. We're going we're gonna to take a look at Stephen's sermon. We're going to take a look at Stephen's sight and then Stephen's suffering. So that's some good alliteration. You can remember, sights or sermon sight suffering, all right? And Stephen starts with an S, so. Uh, so just to catch you up to where we're going to start, um, Stephen, uh, Luke, who, who actually writes the book of Acts, reiterates here that Stephen is a man that's full of grace and power. He's full of the Holy Spirit, so much so, in fact, that he begins doing these great signs and wonders. And apparently the ministry that he's doing, it's so powerful, it's so effective that it begins to cause a little bit of a stir in the Jewish community. And it says that there's this group that comes out against Stephen. This group, it's called uh, the, these people that were part of the synagogue of the freed men. And what that means is that here, this is a group of Jewish people who used to be slaves but are no longer slaves, they're free. And this group begins to oppose Stephen and debate him as we pick up in chapter 6, verse 10. It says this, But they, the, the people who oppose Stephen, could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him, Stephen, as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. So the, these men that are getting in arguments with Stephen, it's like they just can't win an argument. Like they, they come up against him, but he's so wise, he's so smart, he just can't win an argument. I know probably some of the husbands in the room know what that feeling is like. They're, they're frustrated. Um, they look foolish. They can't beat them. So you can't beat them. What do you do? They, they go and get them arrested. And so he's brought before, it says, the Sanhedrin, which is like the supreme court of Jewish authority. This is the, the top of all Jewish authority. And this is the same group of men who a couple chapters before had just had Peter and the rest of the apostles in there. And they told Peter and the rest of the apostles, stop talking about this Jesus guy. They beat them. They flogged them and they sent them on their way. This is the same court that brought Jesus in, that, that came up with the, the, the plot to kill Jesus. This is, these, this is the same guys in this room. 
And so they have some false witnesses come in and lay down some claims against Stephen. And then in verse 15, we read that it says this, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It's just like an interesting thing I want you to to maybe remember. Um, We'll come back to that. Then the high priest asked Stephen. This is the same high priest who interviewed Peter. This is the same high priest who talked to Jesus, Caiaphas. Uh, He asked Stephen, are these charges true? So they get him in front of this, this court, and now it's his chance to defend himself, right? This is his, this is his shot to defend himself. But what Stephen does next is, is brilliant. It's, um, it's pretty fascinating. Instead of simply defending himself, he starts to give a little bit of a history lesson. He actually starts to give a little bit of a sermon to them, and it's the, the longest speech recorded in all of Acts. And so we're not going to go through it verse by verse. We'd probably be here all day if we did that. Um, But I'm going to boil it down for us. I do encourage you after this to read it on your own because it's fascinating. It's brilliant the way he puts it all together. Uh, But Stephen begins to talk to this court about their history. And he starts off with this statement about our father Abraham. And so he's he's connected them. He's saying, look, this is our history and our, our father Abraham, right? And so he says, our father Abraham, he, he made this, God made this covenant, covenant with Abraham. He made this promise to Abraham, our ancestor, that one day that he would have ancestors uh, that, you know, more than the number of stars there are in the sky, that, that the whole world would be blessed through his offspring. And then he continues on and he begins to talk about Joseph, who's Abraham's like great-grandson. And Joseph um, is chosen by God to lead his people and to, to, to deliver them. But what ends up happening with Joseph is that his brothers get jealous, and they throw him in a pit, and they sell him off into slavery. And even though he's rejected, God still ends up using him to, to save his people, to bring his people uh, back. Then he continues on, and he begins to talk about Moses and how Moses is God, was God's chosen person to lead his people and bring his people to freedom. But again, the, the people choose to reject Moses at Mount Sinai. When he goes up on the mountain, they're all at the bottom creating these idols, and they completely turn their back on Jesus, and, or not on Jesus, on Moses. And even though they turn their back on Moses, even though they completely reject him, God still uses him to bring his people into freedom, into the promised land. And, he, and so this, this whole kind of story that he's telling, this whole history that he's telling culminates in verses 51 through 53 of Acts 7. He says this. This is kind of where the application starts of the sermon, and it's, it's pretty bold. He says, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. 
So he says to them, look, you know that pattern where we persecute the one that God chooses to deliver us and, and, and save us? You're still doing it. And you did it to Jesus. In fact, this all, all these stories have been pointing to him, to, to Jesus. And, and from the beginning with Abraham, this very beginning covenant was always pointing to Jesus. And you have murdered even him. Jesus is the climax to the whole pattern. He's saying, look, we, we persecute and reject God's chosen. And, and in spite of that, those people, people God still uses to deliver us. And he says, but in Jesus, we, we are delivered through his persecution and rejection and death. He's essentially saying, look, the law was never meant to save us, right? Outside in transformation doesn't really work. That's why he, he says that they have uncircumcised hearts. What he's saying is you do all the right things on the outside, right? Like you obey the law on the outside, you're doing the right actions, but your hearts have not changed one bit. Jesus calls this whitewashed tombs when he's talking to the Pharisees, that they're clean on the outside. They look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's death. They're dead. He's actually echoing a lot of Joseph's words that Joseph uses for his brothers. When Joseph, you know, gets shipped off into slavery, he ends up in Egypt, and he, you know, a couple chapters later, he rises up and becomes kind of like the number two guy in all of Egypt. And a famine hits, and Joseph's brothers are starving to death, and they know Egypt has food. And so they show up in Egypt to kind of ask, can we please have some food? And who do they come before? They come up to their brother, Joshua, the one that they had sold into slavery. And it's kind of like a uh-oh moment. And Joshua says this to them. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This is, this is essentially what Stephen is saying here. What, what you guys meant for evil in killing Jesus, God meant for good. Because, of, because Jesus died, we can be made right with God. Don't you see it? He's, he's preaching a sermon to these guys. He's, he's trying to get them to open their eyes to see that Jesus is the one they've always been waiting for. Well, it continues on in uh, verse 54, and they're not too happy. You get to see their reaction. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. I don't know what level of anger gnashing your teeth is at, but it's definitely, definitely pretty high up there. My uh, two-year-old, Cohen, he does this thing now where he, after he's done eating, he just dumps his food and... and like drink on the floor, and nothing gets under my skin like that. Like, there, there's an anger that comes to me in that moment that I didn't even know I had. I'm not even a clean guy, so I don't know what it is, but when he looks me in the eye and dumps it on the floor, man, that gets me angry. But I still don't think I'm at gnashing my teeth level anger. Um, but they're gnashing their teeth at Stephen, so angry. And so, We've, we've heard Stephen's sermon, a lot of S's, uh, Stephen's sermon, and now we get to see his sight. So in verse 55, it says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
See, Stephen's sight is really a representation of what he just said. Right? He's, he's sitting in this earthly courtroom, and he's getting a peek into the heavenly courtroom. And it says that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, which is interesting, because every time uh, we hear about Jesus at the right hand of God, this is the, this is the only place in all of Scripture where it says that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Everywhere else, it talks about how Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. But Stephen says he sees him standing at the right hand of God. And what's happening is, while Stephen is in this courtroom on earth, where they're about to pronounce him guilty and take his life, he's seeing into the heavenly courtroom, where Jesus stands to say, he's with me. And he's about to give him eternal life. This is what Jesus was actually talking about in Matthew 10, 32 where he says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. See, Stephen gets to see this pronouncement of innocence, and it's the only pronouncement that really matters, and the only courtroom that truly matters. And so his sight, this vision that Stephen has, is going to lead to his suffering. At this moment, verse 57, it says, At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him. This is like, I mean, this, to me, this is like little kids where they, you know, put their fingers in their ears and they're like, la, 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 I'm not listening. Like, I mean, it's gotten childish at this point, but it's turned into a mob. These guys are covering their ears and screaming and running at Stephen. They're so angry. It says, they drag him out of the city and began to stone him. Um, stoning was basically a way of killing someone back then where, you know, they would throw you off like a high ledge and then they would begin to throw big boulders and rocks on you. And uh, they would just throw stones at you until you died. And everyone would do it. And so they're beginning to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin, sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, this is such a contrast. If, if you can take a look at the anger and hatred of this out-of-control mob that drags Stephen out of the city, and the man who's facing death, the calmness and peace and, and love and compassion that Stephen has, I mean, just the two are complete opposites. And that he would even pray for, for the people that are killing him as they're killing him. That reminds me of one other man who did that. It was Jesus when he did it on the cross, when he said, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the same, this is the same thing Stephen is doing here. He's, he's saying, don't hold the fact that they're killing me against them. He's praying for them in that moment. And I believe what he saw led to how he suffered. That, that the secret of his courage, the secret of his peace in this moment is that he has his eyes fixed on Jesus. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, even death loses its power. See, we need to... I think we need to read Acts 8.1 to see the full effect 
of what happens um, because of Stephen's story, because of his sermon and sight and suffering. I think they all lead to something. They all lead to a spark. Acts 8.1 says that Saul and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. See, what God does here is, is he takes Stephen's suffering and he uses it to do something. He takes Stephen's suffering and he redeems it. And this might sound like a bad thing at first, right? That persecution breaks out for all the people. But what, what ends up happening? It starts to spread these Christians out, that they're scattered throughout Judea and Sumeria, Samaria, just like Jesus said. Remember when Jesus said, you'll be my apostles to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel begins to spread because of this, this man, this, this persecution pushes the gospel out to places it hasn't been before. But I think there's one other spark that really takes place too. I want to ask the question, who's telling this story? Right? We know Luke is, wrote down this story, and he's pretty clear to say that He's writing eyewitness events about what happened uh, with this early church. He's writing the eyewitness events about what happened. But Stephen couldn't have told him this story, right? Stephen was killed. Stephen was murdered. But there is another man there. They mentioned twice, Saul. Saul, who approves of the killing. Saul, who is also known as Paul, was the most likely person probably to be recounting this story to Luke later on. And I think it really planted a seed in Paul. And, and here's a few things that really stand out when, when I was reading this. And I think these are things that probably stuck with Saul. First, that mention of Stephen's face being like a face of an angel. I can imagine Saul going home that night and not being able to get Stephen's head out of his, or Stephen's face out of his head. Like he, he's just, he, he's remembering his face and he's thinking, something was different about that guy. Something was different about his face. It was like the face of an angel. And, and, and then his entire sermon, I mean, he, it's like 60 verses long. And Paul can recount his, the sermon. And so, again, he's probably at home at night, like, reprocessing what he heard and thinking, gosh, what he said had so much truth to it. Like, it's just like sticking with him and he can't get rid of it. It just keeps ringing in his ears. And then this prayer, he, they've probably seen many people stoned, many people killed. And I guarantee you, every time that someone is stoned or killed, they're either crying out for mercy, crying out for it to stop, or they're cursing the ones who are, who are stoning them. But here is a man who prayed for the people who were killing him. And I'm guessing Paul just couldn't get that out of his head. And this, this seed is just planted in Paul that eventually is given life on the road to Damascus, as we're, we'll read later on. See, Paul's life is transformed. He ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. And I think we owe a lot of who Paul is to his experience with Stephen sparked Paul. It, it pushed believers out to places they had never been before, but it also sparked Paul. See, I think we can get to, 
you know, a verse like this in the Bible, and I, I think a question maybe a lot of people would ask is like, would I die for Jesus? Would I? It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Have I been crucified with Jesus? Is my life all about my fun and my comfort and my money and, and my stuff and, and the things that I, need, I want and I need? Is that what my life is all about? All about me, 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 me? The call to follow Jesus is a call to die so that he can come and live inside of us. I don't really, I don't want to just sound extreme just for the sake of it, but following Jesus is not like a casual thing. To take up your cross and follow, that's a call to death. And that's going to be hard and painful and sacrificial, and it's going to involve suffering. The Bible is clear over and over again that following Jesus, it involves suffering. But also, it's the only place where true, full life is found. Jesus, in John 10.10, says, I have come that they may have life and life to the full, or life that is truly life. If you want life that's real life, true life, full life, it's only found in following Jesus. That's why Paul, in, in Philippians 3, says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, that's what Stephen understood, that Jesus was such a treasure that everything else in his life was just garbage in comparison. He saw Jesus as such a treasure that, that in the face of death, he, he's calm because he knows where he's going. Do we see Jesus that way? Do we follow Jesus that way? What's What's holding us back from that? See, for Stephen, this whole journey, um, you know, two chapters ago, started with him saying some yes to something that seemed kind of small at the time, right? There's these widows that need to be taken care of. They ask him, will you take care? And he says, yes, I'll, I'll do that. I'll take care of these widows. Um, the church actually is starting a Stephen ministry um, right, so if you here, um, she she's the one to talk to. But the church is starting a Stephen ministry, and and it, what this what a Stephen ministry is? It exists in churches, thousands of churches all over the world, and it's based on the man that we just read about, the man that we just talked about, and the goal of the ministry is to equip and organize people to provide one-to-one -one care for those who are experiencing life difficulties. And so th there's this ministry born out of this man, Stephen, because that's what he did, right? He, he, he began just by caring for these, these widows, which seems like maybe a small thing at first, but man, what an impact his life had. And I think as you hear more about Stephen's ministry over the next few months, uh, maybe he's calling some people to step out in faithful obedience and become Stephen's ministers. The, the, the real question I want to ask is, what, do you, what is God calling you to step out in faithful obedience to? It could be to, to start serving in Stephen's ministry, but it could be something different. It could be 
helping in children's ministry. It could be leading a small group. It could be like giving up that thing that you, you've wrapped your hands so tightly around that you felt like you could never give up. What is the step that God is calling you to do? What is he calling you to say yes to that might be uncomfortable, that might uh, be difficult, but that also may help you die to yourself? The, the life of Stephen, if it shows us anything, it's that when we put our full hope and our full trust and our full faith in Jesus, the circumstances around us may change. Gosh, but we have something to hold on to that will never change. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the life of Stephen that we get to see in these pages a man who was in love with you because you loved him first, who died because you died for him. Lord, I pray that as uh, we follow you, Lord, we would follow you wholeheartedly. God, we pray for the, the martyrs around the world, the thousands of people every year who do face suffering and who do die because they follow you. Lord, we lift those people up. We thank you for their example. God, we pray that we would not become complacent just because it's safe to be a Christian here, or that you would call us to take steps of faith, of radical obedience, even if it might be hard. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.